Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Good morning. It's probably one of my favorite Christmas uh, hymn songs that's out there because, you know, a lot of times we can get stuck in the routine of holidays and traditions. And there, it's not that those are bad things, but we, we'd never want to replace those really good things with the greatest thing. And even in our, you know, Western Christian American mindset that's maybe a little bit separated from Israel and, and, and Jewish faith, we have to understand that Christmas, as we celebrate it, is the fulfillment of Jewish prophecies, that we are grafted into a Jewish faith. And even for us to say, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, it, it is tying us back to that Jewish faith. And so Jesus, you know, we say Jesus Christ. Well, that's a Greek word, Christ, is just the Greek word for the Hebrew word, Messiah, And so we find salvation in Jesus, who is the Messiah for the Old Testament, for the Jewish faith. You know, when we talk about Jesus, it wouldn't make sense for us to call, you know, hey, there's Jesus, the Son of God. There's Jesus, the Lamb of God. There's Jesus, the light of the world. There's Jesus, the bread of life. All of those kind of titles and, and descriptors of him are rooted in the Old Testament. And so, you know, we, you hear this argument every once in a while, like, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. The Jewish person that knows the Old Testament would absolutely disagree with you wholeheartedly. Why? Because Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And we're like, well, that's a term of humanity, is it not? And I said, no. Why? Because you have to go to the Old Testament. You go back to Daniel and you'll see that the first use of that son of man term is one of divinity. And so for us in our faith, what can happen sometimes is we get a little bit removed, maybe a little apathetic, complacent to the foundation of our faith that is laid down in the Old Testament and understanding that Jesus is that promised Messiah for the Jewish faith that we so find salvation in him. And, and Christmas for us is a celebration of that. But again, we can, we can become a little apathetic. We can get a little complacent. We can get a little distracted on really good things of Christmas, right? Like you get the family together, you're giving and receiving gifts. Hopefully you have a good meal. But if we stop short of that, we miss all of it. Even the ways that we can describe it, we'll say things like, oh, the true meaning of Christmas. But if we don't define Christmas by anything other than Jesus, Christmas has no meaning. And it's just a glorified family gathering. And so it's good for us to pause and and look at the Christmas story and not to stay on, on the shallow understanding of just a basic story. We all get that, right? Like even J.C. Penney's gets that. <laughs> you know, Menards understands that. Everybody understands the basic story. But to go deeper, to really see some of the promises and how it's a foundational aspect of our faith 
It is good for us to do and understand who he is, not just Jesus who came into the world to take on our sin, but the foundation, again, being rooted back into, we're rooted in a Jewish faith. And so we are, uh, we, we're done with Revelation. Uh, somebody told me, they said, hey, you should just walk up there and be like, go ahead and open up your Bible to Revelation 23 and see how many just start turning. You know, there's only 22 chapters. That's why that's funny. There we go. <clears throat> And then, and then, honestly, there's been, there's been a small group, a remnant of crazies, we'll just call them that, right? just call it what it is, that are like, where are we going next? Are you just going to go back to the beginning of Revelation, and we'll just do it again? Like Revelation 2.0, and we'll go any, even deeper. And I was like, yeah, we could just keep preaching Revelation until the rapture, and when there's only three of us left, because everybody else would like, I would be gone, you know, I don't know who's taking over, but, so we, we've worked through Revelation, we have a few weeks left for the end of the year, obviously being Christmas, I'm not a big sermon series kind of guy, that's just not my ammo, you know, it's just not what I like to do, but it's good to pause especially around such a holiday that is so foundational for us. And so we're going to be walking through what I'm calling Rediscover Christmas. And so if you have your Bibles, open up to uh, the book of Luke. We're going to spend three weeks and, and pretty much close out the year looking at the story of Christmas. And, and, and we're not even going to walk, you know, wholly through the first few chapters, but we're just going to grab a few passages so that we could really, again, uh, we, I'm going to assume we all understand the, the basic story of the true meaning of Christmas, but we want to go a little bit deeper and, and see just how foundational the Christmas story is and should be to our everyday faith where it's not just uh, an excuse to, again, get the family together and, and have a Christmas ham and you might get some new socks or, you know, like what you're seeing on social media, uh, what do us guys wait for in the new year? Like new underwear, right? Like they're holding on, you know, there's all those memes in that. So or am I the only one that's, okay, all right. All right, I see how it is. And so, you know, but what is that true meaning of Christmas? And do we have that depth? And so for the next three weeks, we're really going to kind of take a deep dive. We're going to geek out here and there and really understand this like full true meaning of Christmas and what it means for us today. What I love about Luke is, um, one, he is the only Gentile author in all of scripture. Every other book of the Bible was written by a Jewish person. Even Hebrews, that we don't know exactly who it was, but when you read the contents of the book of Hebrews, it's like that person had an immense knowledge of the Jewish faith and, and probably would have not gained that any other way than being Jewish himself. But Luke, he was a physician. He was a good physician. And, and he jumps into even the missionary journeys with Paul. Like if you're reading through the book of Acts, because Luke wrote, obviously Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And, and you could be reading through the book of Acts, and you will see he's talking about they did this, they did that, Paul did this. And then about halfway through, he starts using we language, meaning that he literally jumped on the boat of the missionary journeys with Paul and was with him. And he now takes the story that he had heard, and now it's his own testimony of what he was doing with Paul in ministry. And I think one of the reasons Luke uh, loved that opportunity outside of the gospel going forth and saving people, right? Like you got to put that aside, which is a big thing. But there's probably even some underlying reasons. And if you look at the very beginning of the book of Luke, 
He writes, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So he, he's already showing and telling us that there's, there's many witnesses and resources that have been presented and given to him. And it seemed good to me also, having followed everything or all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you. Because we got to understand that when, when Jesus in his three years of ministry, and then he goes to the cross and the resurrection, that wasn't in like Brumley, Missouri, with just like a few people around. And it's like, oh, did you hear about that in Brumley? Like, if you're from Brumley, great. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just trying to like, what's a small little town around here? You know, no, this was like city center of not just Israel, but even the ancient world. When you're thinking about like trade routes, like there was a lot of people that were flowing through this area. Like Israel, uh, let alone Jerusalem, is like Times Square. And, and we hear so many evidences, you know, even of the resurrection, of how many people had seen the risen Jesus. And so I bet as Luke was with Paul and they're traveling around and they meet with different people, every once in a while they'd be like, oh yeah, he was there. And Luke would get really excited about that. Like, I want to interview that person. I want to get their testimony because he's compiling. And how amazing would it be for Luke? Just as he kept interviewing and hearing different resources and testimonies and eyewitnesses, that he's hearing the same story time and time again. And he's writing this. Why? So that we would know the story of Jesus. See, this is actually a very scientific document that we have. And the manner in which Luke wrote, he was writing true history. This is like, it's written, the genre is in like a Roman biography. It's not in mythical story format. Like he, he is interviewing people. He's verifying facts and different things. Even today, scholars, archaeologists use the book of Luke because he's so detailed on things that uh, one of my professors said it this way, I hold the Bible in one hand and the trowel in the other, and I've never been wrong. I love that. So even where, you know, worldly archaeologists know there's no place like this or that, he just goes back to the word. He lets the word lead and guide. And when he starts digging where the word says, he finds it. And so this is a very scientific document that's used. Like if we've looked at it, you can see that there's over a hundred different eyewitness uh, details that would only have been seen again from eyewitnesses that are recorded in the book of, in the book of Luke. And so he wants us to know exactly the story of Jesus. And I love that. Where does he start? even a little bit before, but at the birth of Jesus. Because only two of the four Gospels mention that. And Luke is one, and he just fully kind of lays it out for us. So if you have your Bible, Luke chapter 1, we're jumping into it in verse 26. And he writes, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, 
Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, answered, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son and this in the sixth month with her who is called barren for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant's of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Just a good, normal account of that beautiful Christmas story. And then we go on with our normal holiday traditions. Again, traditions, not bad things. But when they replace the true meaning of what Christmas is about. And, when, and if we refuse to go into the deeper parts of the word to understand, we miss the foundation that has been laid for us. We're going to look at three concepts this morning. One, does the virgin birth really matter? That doctrine, honestly, is being uh, absolutely kind of sidestepped and just uh, taken off of core beliefs for us. There's pastors and church leaders today that write about that say, I don't even know if it's true or if it really even matters, to which I would say, au contraire, mon frere. Like there's huge implications to this. And so we'll talk about, does the doctrine of the virgin birth really matter? Is it really true? And we're going to defend that. We want to look at the prophecies. So second thing, we're going to look at the prophecies concerning Jesus. That's a great defense of our faith. That I think, again, when we are gathering together for our families and we're in this holiday kind of uh, season, we miss the significance of this and what it means for our Christian faith. So we're going to look at the prophecies of Jesus concerning his birth. And then lastly, what does it mean to have faith in the true meaning of Christmas? What should the response be of us as followers of Jesus because we know the Christmas story? So now you'll know when we get out, we're going to make it through those three, and then we'll be, we'll be done. So there we go. So why does the virgin birth matter? Is it really true? Did it really happen? I mean, just think about the whole concept on top of all of that. Like, this, like out of everybody, the angel is sent to go to Mary and Nazareth. I mean, even one of the disciples, you know, 30 years later says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So she already wears a little bit of that reputation just from where she's from. Like, really? And, and I wonder even if in her own heart and mind, she kind of even struggled with that. Like, really? And it, just imagine the angel appearing to her. Like, if, if an angel appeared to me, like, I would thank the Lord that the first thing that he would say is, oh, favored one, right? Like, I would love to hear that if an angel appeared to me. Like, I'm concerned an angel's going to appear to me, and it's one that's been carrying the seven bowls of God's wrath, right? <laughs> that's the angel that needs to appear to me, be like, Nick, you rascal, let's talk. Like, definitely not, oh, favored one. <laughs> but Mary's most likely 16-ish age year old, you know. And this angel appears to her. He's just a messenger. So everything that he's saying, what we could say is, this is what God sees in her. 
that God looks at her and says, oh, favored one, and says that you, you're going to give birth. Now, if anybody, think about this, if anybody's going to know about the, the, the doctrine of the virgin birth, I think Mary would be it, right? I think if anybody knows that if she's been with a man or not, it would be Mary. And she's even kind of a little bit perplexed by the idea. She's like, how can this be? Because, you know, she's betrothed. She's legally bound to a man in marriage, but there has been no physical context for that yet because that's what a betrothal is. They're not physically active yet. That, that's not the part of the marriage because we have to, again, we don't think about our concept of marriage. We have to go back to an ancient uh, Israel Jewish context of marriage where they'd be betrothed, legally married, but it wasn't until up to sometimes a year later that they would have the marriage ceremony. We kind of walked through that when we talked about Revelation. So they're in this betrothal period. She's like, how, how am I going to give birth to a son? Like just that concept right there because I'm betrothed to Joseph. Like I've never been with a man and you're telling me I'm going to give birth to a son. Like help me understand. So there's just a lot of curiosity, a lot of this, this doesn't make sense that we see in Mary. But he tells her, the angel, he says, behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son. And well, how will this be? Well, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So what are the implications for the virgin birth? Why, why do we need to hold fast so much to this? How does it, does it really matter? So, you know, defense number one, it's always been an essential article of our faith. Because we love verses like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. But the virgin birth, this is the means by which God used to send his son into the world as a man. So when we hear John 3, 16, we say, well, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. Well, how did that look? How, how is God able to give his son and into the world? Like, how does that look like? Well, the virgin birth defends that. And there's even another little uh, Christmas verse. If you go to Galatians chapter 4, if you want to read along with me so you don't think I'm making it up. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, but when the fullness of time had come, and just to pause right there, like there's so much we could geek out. Like why did God wait until then to send forth his son? Like what was going on already in the world and in the culture that that was the fullness of time? That in a sense, like, God the Father is waiting. Say, not yet, Jesus. We're not going to send you to be born like a man, take on flesh. Not yet. We've got to wait until the fullness of time. And, and there's a lot there, but that's for another sermon. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, is what it says. Not born of a man and a woman. Not born, in, it says, born of a woman, born under the law. And so the virgin birth explains for us the understanding of how God was able to send forth his son. Now, let's go down the road a little bit. What if the virgin birth is false? I think one of the implications that it has, if it is false, it's a slippery slope, is the historical reliability of the Gospels is seriously undermined. Because think. If Luke was wrong here, where else was he wrong? If he can be wrong in any one part of Scripture, could he not be wrong in every part of Scripture? 
And how can we hold fast to the Word of God and say things like, all Scripture is breathed out by God, except for the virgin birth part of that. Yeah, like, God didn't know really what He was doing there. He kind of spoke before He was thinking. You know, that happens to the best of us. And that wasn't the right word He should have used. The virgin birth really doesn't matter. And that's, that's not true. Well, then all Scripture is not breathed out by God then. And, it, and I think Peter writes in one of his epistles that there's no prophecy that comes about by the will of man, but only by God. And so how, so when we deny the virgin birth, like there's this slippery slope that we're attacking the reliability of the gospels. And I get pretty fired up about that, right? Like that's one area, like we're gonna go toe to toe and I'm not gonna stop swinging, just gonna be honest with you. So we can debate it, all day long. You can defend, you know, a position somebody can all day long. That's, that's a hill I'm going to fight on every day of the week and twice on Sunday, that the gospels are absolutely historically reliable to the life of Jesus and that all scripture is inspired and breathed out by God. But what I think the virgin birth is necessary for us is to understand the two natures of Jesus. And we were even having this conversation with a couple of the college age. Me and my wife lead a college age life group at our house. We meet on Sundays. And usually we talk about the sermon. And then it's, it turns into Ask Nick. You know, and they just bring up all kinds of questions from all different kinds of places. You know, like, Nick, is this and that? And it's just like, oh, here we go. All right. Some are really easy. Other ones, I kind of look at my wife and smile. And it's like, how deep down into the rabbit hole do I go? You know, it's like, because... It, there's going to be some preconceived ideas that I'm just going to shatter because I'm going to hold fast to the word of God. And so we were talking about this. It's like, well, how, how can Jesus have these two natures? And, and we see it in scripture. And if we don't understand this idea well, it could lead us to a really skewed understanding of Jesus, right? So uh, a little wordplay of how you can remember. So the idea of the Trinity, right? God in three persons. So God is one, Right? That's why we can hold fast to Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord our God is one. We are a monotheistic religion. We believe in one God, but in three persons. So there's three who's in one what. One what? God. Three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There we go. Three persons. Personhood, mind, will, and emotions. All three have those. That's what is required for personhood. Not a body. So for you to be a person, you have to have a mind, a will, and emotions, and all those three. So there's three who's and one what. That's the Trinity. But then in the person of Jesus, he is a one who, but with two what's. He has a human nature, and he has a divine nature. He is 100% human, just like me and you, and at the same time, he's 100% divine. He is 100% God. Now, what it isn't is like, you know, the body of Jesus is a container and we mixed the two that, that will get you into heresy, right? And if you, like, let's talk about the story of Christmas, right? So St. Nicholas that I was named after, amen. I don't know if I was named after him, right? There, 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 was, a, there was a cat on the scene named, uh, I think it's Arius, right? And he denied the divinity of Jesus and this St. Nicholas walked over at this like big high-level church function and just smacked the snot right out of him. And I'm like, and that's who Santa Claus is based off of, smacking another dude for denying the divinity of Jesus. That's my kind of Christmas right there, right? You deny Jesus, you're getting smacked. Let's go. Sign me up for that church. 
And so Jesus, one who, two what's, 100% human and 100% divine. So when you see things in Scripture where Jesus says, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the Son of Man, referring to himself, talking about when is he going to return to the earth? Well, Jesus is God. How does he not know? That's in his human nature. But in the same breath, he can look at the Pharisees. Sorry that I pointed at you guys as Pharisees. I don't believe that. Maybe over here. No. Okay. Uh, so, but he can look at the Pharisees and perceive their thoughts. Or you look at Jesus and say, well, how is he tired and thirsty? Does God get tired? Does God need a little nap? A little catch me up? Does he need a little McGriddle just to get a little energy in him? Like, how does God change in that? No, that's in his human nature. And so we see 100% humanity, 100% divinity in the one person of Jesus, and the virgin birth is necessary to understand that. Because if Jesus had not been born of a human, we would not believe in his full humanity. If, if the story of Jesus coming to earth, so you know, we read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Well, how did he do that? He just descended from the clouds upon us at 30 years old, and there is Jesus. We would absolutely look at that and be like, well, he's not human then. And his humanity is absolutely necessary for our salvation. But, but if you now go the other way, if his birth was like any other human, if he was just like us, and it's like, oh yeah, that's his mom and his dad right there, we would question his full divinity. And is that not what the Pharisees, even at the day, and those around, would be like, isn't that just the carpenter's son? Like, the savior of the world, the Messiah that we're waiting on is Jesus? It's kind of like when you invite friends to church, and you're like, yeah, that's the senior pastor. Really? Like, that's the guy? But God's into that, isn't he not? Samuel trying to find the next king of Israel, goes to Jesse, looks all of his great sons that are tall, good-looking, probably had hair and a six-pack. And be like, no, it's not any of these. What about the little, you know, pipsqueak out there with the sheep? Yeah, that's, that's God's man right there. And so a lot of people missed it. He's like, really? Like, because if his birth was like anybody else, we wouldn't believe in his divinity. And so how, how is God going to bring forth his son into the world that he would be 100% human, 100% divine, because he needs to be the perfect God-man so that salvation is absolutely secure? We can't explain it without the virgin birth. And, and to go one more is because the virgin birth defends the sinlessness of Jesus. So if you want, turn to Hebrews for me, if you would. So working through Hebrews chapter, we're going to start at four. I'm going to read a verse here, and then we're going to go to seven. So Hebrews 4, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He is just like us in his full humanity. And here's the key three words, yet without sin. Well, how could Jesus be without sin? It's not just that he didn't commit any sin. There's not even a sin nature that has been passed on to him from his parents. All right, so now go to, turn the page, go to Hebrews 7. 
Look at verses 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for their own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus was absolutely without sin. And the virgin birth defends that. Paul would talk later that he would see that that sin nature is past because when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. Why? Because the sin nature is passed through the man, not the woman. And that's why the virgin birth is so key because that sin nature was not passed to Jesus because he was only born of a woman. Be like, oh, that's very convenient, Nick. Like, I, I, could, I bet Luke just probably wrote that in there to help that little theological point. Go clear back to Genesis. 2,000 years before this was written, most likely, if not uh, maybe a little bit more, Go clear back to Genesis, to the very beginning, chapter 3. At the fall of man, when sin entered the world, what did God say to the serpent? There will be enmity between your seed and their seed? Referencing Adam and Eve? Nope. There'll be enmity between your seed, serpent, and looking at Adam and his seed? No. Genesis 3 tells us that there'll be enmity between your seed, talking to the serpent, and her seed. So even that prophetic little tidbit to say that, no, no, Jesus is only going to be born of a woman that is again seen in Galatians 4 and, and Matthew and Luke are the only gospels that give us a birth narrative, absolutely defend that it was only through Mary, that it was through an overshadowing of the Holy Spirit that it was the power of the Most High that was coming upon her. Why? Because if there was no virgin birth, then Jesus would not have been spotless, innocent. He would not have been perfectly holy. And as a result, we would have no mediator, no salvation, because when has God ever accepted a sacrifice that was not perfect? All through the Old Testament, you will bring an unblemished, spotless, perfect lamb. God is holy and righteous, and he cannot accept. It would not have been an acceptable sacrifice if Jesus said one lie. If he had even a sin nature upon him, he had to be completely set apart. He is, he is yet without sin, but he is still that faithful high priest. He's 100% human. He's like us. He understands our weaknesses, our struggles. He's that faithful high priest, but yet without sin because he's perfectly divine. He is God. So he is that perfect God-man to secure our salvation. So the next time it's like, ah, virgin birth, does that really matter? Your salvation matters. And that doctrine of the virgin birth defends our salvation because Jesus had to be the perfect God-man. Look at verse 35. It's kind of one of those little nuance, but I think it's good. The angel answered her, and he says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore. And anytime you see that word in Scripture, you always have to ask yourself, what is it there for? Because it's connecting everything that was just said to what is about to be said. Because of the Holy Spirit coming upon you, because of the power of the Most High overshadowing you, 
Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That without the virgin birth, without the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary, without the power of the Most High overshadowing Mary, he would not be holy. He would not be the Son of God. The virgin birth absolutely matters to the understanding of the personhood of Christ. Because if we get the person of Christ wrong, the work of Christ will never be right. He was not just human. He wasn't just a rabbi and a rebel rouser, flipping tables, and that's what got him killed. He knew, I think it's Hebrews 10, he knew before he came into the world, and that's a true story of the night before Christmas, he knew it was a body that was prepared for me for sacrifice so that he would bring salvation. And that's why John the Baptist, when Jesus started his ministry, could look at him and say, that's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was a a title of divinity upon him. So the virgin birth, that doctrine absolutely matters. And then the second part we're talking about is the birth of Jesus and the fulfilled prophecy, because I think that's such a key thing that we kind of miss, especially at Christmas. Yeah, there's the, you know, the wise men, was there three? Probably not. They only brought three gifts, and they didn't even show up until he was a child. So if you have, like, the nativity set at home, take your three wise men and, like, put them clear down the hall, you know, by your bedroom or something. Like, they didn't show up until he was about two. That's why Herod killed those that were two and younger. That's why they said, hey, we're looking for the child. They were not looking for the baby. Shepherds were looking for a baby. Wise men were looking for a child, right? Again, not a salvation issue, but it's good to know the truth in this. But when we look at the birth of Jesus and we, we think of the story, we have to understand, like, we have a great defense for our faith because of fulfilled prophecy. And you hear hintings of this from the angel talking to Mary. He said, hey, you're going to give birth to a son call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. So he takes him back to the Davidic covenant that God set up with David and he will reign over the house of, so we go even earlier, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So there Jesus is fulfilling the covenant with David and with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So as we've talked about in Revelation before, and we, we see it here, If God does not have a plan for Israel, then Jesus cannot fulfill this prophecy. If Jesus cannot fulfill this prophecy, then God is not who he says that he is. But God has a plan for Israel because Jesus is still waiting to sit upon the throne of David to reign over the house of Jacob forever and for his kingdom to be no end. God still has a plan for Israel. If not, then he didn't mean what he said. And again, those are dangerous waters that we we can go toe-to-toe I'm going to tell you, I'm going to come at you like a rabid monkey and I'm not letting up, okay? Like, it doesn't look like I can do much, but I can throw some kitten paws, okay? No. (laughs) And so the prophecy, why does prophecy matter? How is that a defense to our faith? Let's just put Christianity on every, on the same level of any other world religion. Because don't we hear that? Don't you hear that in like, you know, videos or reels? Like, oh, Christianity, Jesus, it's just like any other world religion. You just so happen to call him Jesus, And a lot of people think, oh yeah, because you're from America, of course you're Christian. And it's like, Christianity, the gospel hit Africa way before it ever hit Europe, let alone to America. Like this, you know, we get pushed on it sometimes like, oh, it's a white man's religion. It's like, you don't understand church history. (laughs) You don't even understand Jesus. He didn't look like us. 
But if we put them on the same level, and let's talk through it, right? Disconcerning the birth. There's no other prophecies for telling the details about the birth of any other religious leader, right? There, there's no ancient manuscripts or texts in any other world religion. There's no prophecies that alerted the world to the coming of Muhammad for Islam. No prophecies that alerted the world of Joseph Smith with Mormonism, David Koresh with the Branch Davidians, Charles Russell with Jehovah Witnesses, the Buddha of Buddhism, or any other founder of the world's religions. And yet the Old Testament pinpointed numerous details about the life of Jesus, even his birth. And so one of the greatest evidences that we have to say that Christianity is absolutely unlike any other world religion, fulfilled prophecy. And even just looking at the birth of Jesus, right? And, and we'll talk about some probability of it all, but just look at the birth of Jesus. So we've talked about the virgin birth. That was prophesied back in Isaiah chapter seven. We knew what town he was gonna be in. Even Herod asked that of, of his kind of scholars when the wise men showed up and said, hey, we're looking for the king. And Herod's like, I'm right here. And they're like, no, <laughs> swipe right. We'll take another one, right? Like, not you. Like who? And he's like, we're looking for, and he, he asked his scribes. He's like, well, where's the king supposed to be born in? They're like, that's easy, Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Like, read your Bible, Herod, come on, right? That's, that's there. So we even knew what town he was gonna be born in. And even the idea that, that, Herod was going to kill these young babies, the two and under. That was prophesied in Jeremiah 31. And then you got something weird because it almost looks like a contradiction because it says the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. But then in uh, Hosea 11, it says that he's going to come out of Egypt. And even further than that, we know from Isaiah 11 that he's going to come from Nazareth. So it almost feels like a contradiction. Be like, okay, God, which one is it? Is he going to be born in Bethlehem? Is he going to be born in Nazareth? Is he coming out of Egypt? Like, feels like you're just kind of covering your bases in case you're wrong. But when we look at the life of Jesus, we see how he fulfilled that he was born in Bethlehem. He was called, you know, somewhat Jesus of Nazareth, and he did come up out of Egypt. And he fulfills the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Genesis 12. We see a promise given to Judah, Genesis 49, that he fulfills. We see the promises given to David in Isaiah 9 and 2 Samuel 7, saying that, hey, somebody from your lineage will sit on your throne forever, and it's fulfilled in Jesus. And we, we can't become numb and overlook the context that between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 400 years, at least, at the very ends of the Old Testament and the beginnings of the New Testament, 400-year gap period. Like our country is not even 400 years old. I remember the first time me and my wife, we learned that fact, right? Because it could be easy to think you like you finish the Old Testament and then like two weeks later, here's Jesus. Like that wasn't that hard. 400 years. And for years, it was kind of a struggle to defend that until archaeology comes through. Because a little boy shepherding his goats threw a rock into a cave in Qumran and he hears a jar explode. And what does he find? Dead Sea Scrolls. In every book of the Old Testament outside of, and I don't know if it's Esther or Ruth, one of the gals, wasn't there. But everything else was. Ancient manuscripts that predate what we ever had by so far. So even now, if you, if you can go and see the Dead Sea Scrolls, go and do it. It's absolutely amazing. But they're dated to 150 to 200 years B.C. 
So it absolutely shows and defends. And the same, like, you can see the scroll of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls. They've translated it from that language to English, and it is 99% to what you hold this morning in your Bible. And the variant has nothing to do with any kind of theology. It's just like spelling and, and letter placement, if that. And a lot of the prophecies that we talk about of, of Jesus are in that Isaiah scroll. And so to see just that gap period and then for Jesus' life to come in and to fulfill all those prophecies. And we're just talking about his birth. If we had his whole life and death and resurrection and even his second coming, we're in the hundreds of those. But what's the probability? Let's just say Jesus was just human. We've talked about this before, but it's so good we got to do it again. Let's just say Jesus was just human. What would the probability of you or me or any other human to fulfill, let's just say eight prophecies. I'd mentioned eight here just concerning his birth, right? None of us had control like that. We just showed up when we showed up. We showed up to the family that we showed up to, you know, good, bad, ugly, whatever it'd be, that's our family. Showed up to the place that we were born, yippee, Missouri, yay, right? <laughs> this is what we do. You have no control in that. But what would, what would statistically the probability of any of us fulfilling just eight of the prophecies given about the life of Jesus? So one mathematician, way smarter than me, said, here's a, here's a word picture to help understand what it's like. Imagine filling the whole state of Texas. Texas is pretty big. The whole state of Texas, two feet high with half dollars. Two feet high, all of Texas with half dollars. You're going to take one of those half dollars, you're going to mark it with a Sharpie with an X, and you're going to take it and you're going to chuck that right in the middle of Texas, and then you're going to stir it all up and, and, and lose it amongst all of those half dollars, right? And then we're going to take Jeff Carson here, we're going to blindfold him, and we're going to let him walk his little heart's desire all through Texas, right? Going to go down to San Antonio, maybe up to Dallas, check out Houston, go to Galveston. That's all the cities I know in Texas, right? And he's going to walk until his heart's just fulfilled to reach down and pick up one half dollar. What do you think the probability that he is going to grab that marked half dollar? It's the same probability of a human fulfilling just eight prophecies of Jesus. Christianity is unlike any other world religion by far. Why? Because the evidence of fulfilled prophecy in the life, specifically even the birth of Jesus. It absolutely sets us apart. And so when we are celebrating and talking about Christmas, it's, it's not just this cute little story that we know of a manger and a camel and some wise men, but God is a God that keeps his promises. And when you hear this angel even look to Mary and say, with God, nothing is impossible. The very fact that he is here and we knew that he was coming shows that God is absolutely who he is. And, and again, the virgin birth defends to us that he is the God-man and that we have salvation in him. And then the last portion, faith in the true meaning of Christmas. What does that mean? I love the response of Mary, and let's just have the conversation. Us as Protestants get really scared of Mary. Why? Because we're so worried our Catholic brothers and sisters are going to like rub off on us and we're going to you know, misappropriate something to Mary, right? And so we, we, like, we, we kick her, push her down as much as we can and we don't even want to be seen around her. She's like the ugly girl at the school dance, 
Be like, oh, did she talk to you? Be like, no, I didn't talk to her. I don't know who that is. You know, we don't want her to like ruin our reputation. Like, I'm just going to say in the Protestant faith, we need to calm down a little bit. At the same sense, you know, I, I would encourage my Catholic brothers and sisters, like, uh, you, you might double check if you're elevating her a little bit too much. And, but I have no desire to stand up here and like have a Mary bash by any means. But she absolutely was somebody that was key in the story of Jesus. That again, out of anybody, this angel appears to her and says, oh, you favored one. Like she had a part in what God was doing on the landscape of human history. But we see a great example of faith in Mary. Because the angel looks at her and says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And what was Mary's response? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. See, the great example of faith in Mary who believed in God's word. Even though it didn't make sense, like, hey, I've never been with a man, and you say I'm going to have a child, let alone I'm going to have a child. He's going to be the savior of the world. He's going to be the son of God, the son of the most high. Like, she probably didn't even have a context to understand the true implications of that. But if God said it, her faith was in what he said. Her faith wasn't in what she felt. Curious, misunderstanding, not, you know, like, what's, what is this about? She didn't let her feelings drive her faith. She let the word of God through this angel drive her faith. And that's a great example for us this Christmas. That allow the word of God, put your faith in Jesus and allow the word of God, believe it. Don't follow your emotions and, oh, I feel lonely, I feel depressed, I feel forgotten, I feel alone. No, no, no. Let the word of God speak into your life. Let God say who you are, not what your emotions are. Because honestly, because of our faith in Jesus, it is a redemptive impossibility for any of us to be alone. You may feel alone this Christmas season, and you may come from a really crazy, broken family, but you're not alone. Because of your faith in Jesus, I mean, is that not what Christmas is all about? Emmanuel, God with us. You are not alone. Put your faith in the word of God. Understand what he says about you. Understand what he has called you and what your response should be in this world. The story of Christmas is about what God is doing on the landscape of human history. And the great example of Mary is her saying, I believe in the word of God. And what does she say? I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She surrendered and submitted herself as a servant unto the Lord. And so the story, the, the example of faith that we need, yes, believe in the word of God. And she also desired to be God's servant and working out his plan. And so we need to have a faith that says, yes, God can do anything. And I want to be the one through whom God's plans are accomplished. But how many times in the church that we'll say, oh yeah, nothing is impossible with God. And we love God's plan and what he wants to do on the landscape of human history, but I don't want to be a part of it. God, you got a great plan. You got a good thing going. I like it. You know, hey, I'll be here and, and cheer it from the you know, spectators section of the body of Christ, but I really don't want to engage in that. I got my own thing going here. It's looking real good. How about we just meet up at the end and we'll party like there's no tomorrow. 
The story of Christmas is that God has no desire for passive spectators to his plan and the landscape of human history. That he wants to see a body of Christ that is actively engaged in the ministries of the church. And so one of those, like let's just talk about it. So the big thing that we are doing right now, we cast a vision for it clear back uh, last year at Vision Sunday, which that's coming up in January. You'll hear more about that. But last Vision Sunday, we talked about this family Christmas support, partnering with the school district and partnering with organizations around. And I'm going to blink on the stinking number. I had it last service. They were here. Over 100 families in the school of the Osage have signed up and we get to be a part of handing them a bag of presents that have asked for Christmas support. It's amazing. And so when we cast vision for that, there was one lady that said, you know, she didn't just sit back and say, you know what, that's really cool. And I like that our church is doing that. And that's easy for us to say sometimes. Oh yeah, I love my church. They're doing all this and da, da, da. But we say it from what? The spectator seat. But one sweet lady walks up and says, I want to be a part of that. To which we as staff kind of smiled at each other. and was like, we don't want you to be a part of it. We want you to lead this thing, right? And so Edie Jones stepped into leadership to lead this ministry. And we as a staff merely just supporting because we're equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. Maybe read that in Ephesians. But this is an awesome thing that God has for us. But we need the same response as Mary. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me. How can I be actively engaged in what God is doing in and through our church and in our community? That it's not about us just sitting back and watching, you know, the faithful few do it all. But the story of Christmas is the invitation to be a part of what God is doing in the world. And so I encourage you, like we, this next two weeks is like go week where we're having all kinds of drop-offs and then we got to organize them, get them set up. Uh, for the families, then for pickup, we're putting resources and, and gospel uh, resources in there to try to reach families with the gospel, and, and we're going to deliver them. Like, it's an all-hands-on-deck, and so if you are in, in interested in any way to be a part of that, please see Edie Jones. I think she's not here, um, but come see me or one staff member. We'll get you her email, some way in contact with her so that you could be a part of what God is doing. Because that's the call for us at Christmas. That's the example that we see in Mary is, yes, she believed in the word of God. Yes, we say things like, yeah, we want people to be invited into a saving relationship with Christ. But if we stay in the spectator seat, when will we ever invite them to be a part of what we celebrate? How many people don't understand the reason for the manger and a cross? How many people don't understand the depth of who Jesus is and the evidence and the word of God that we have? Why? Because is he not our hope? Is he not our peace? How many people do we see in our communities and our sphere of influences that we just kind of sometimes even just shake our head and write off and be like, man, they need Jesus. And how will they ever know about him if we just stay in the cheering section? The story of Christmas is the story of us as the body of Christ to be actively engaged in the ministry of the body of Christ. So not only do I want God's plan to be done, but is our heart saying, I want to be the one to do God's work and to be a servant to his plan. Because think, that was even Jesus' heart. You read John 5. 
and I'm paraphrasing horribly, so don't quote me on this, but Jesus had a response to the effect of, I'm not doing anything on my own initiative. I'm not walking around thinking like, all right, I need to do this, I need to do that, I need... He goes, I just merely come alongside and do what I see my Father doing. So we, as good children of God, right? What's a, I, I got little ones, and I got to watch out as a dad, right? Because the things I do, they're going to pick up. It's like, hey, wh- wh- where did you pick up that bad habit? And they just point at me. They're like, your mother is rotten, I tell you. No. They learn from me. They do the things that I do. Even my son, when he was younger, he looked at me, tears in his eyes. I just want to be you. <laughs> set the bar higher, son. Set the bar higher. But like good kids, don't we just want to follow our father? As good kids, we just come alongside where Jesus is already at work in the community, and we just do what we see him doing. We don't have to wonder and think, okay, how do I be the hands and the feet? Just do what Jesus is doing. He's talking, he's listening, he's reaching out to people, he's spending time with them. I mean, we think of the big miracles and the teaching. Actually, the gospels show us far more the very things that we can do. The ministry of presence and just being with people. That's what the story of Christmas is all about. And so I encourage you, you know, as, we, as we're celebrating this season, as we're going to continue this rediscover Christmas kind of series, understand that the virgin birth absolutely matters because our salvation hinges upon it. That he is, Jesus is the perfect God-man. That he is, and, and, and beyond that, he fulfilled so many prophecies just so that we would know and understand that he is God. Like God loved us so much, he's like, I'm going to give you these prophecies, I'm going to give you the heads up, because I don't want you to miss that he is God. Amazing. But then there's also a hand, an invitation to say, and be a part of what I'm doing in the landscape of human history. Be a part of how Jesus is impacting the lake area. Look at your sphere of influence. Look at your time, your talent, your treasure, and ask the Lord this one question. How would you want me to be a part of what you are doing? And that's between you and him. I can't tell you what to do. All I'm asking you is just simply pray and ask the Lord with everything that he has given you, what, how would you want me to be involved in this? That's what it means to have faith in the true meaning of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you, Lord. Thank you for an opportunity to dig into your word and just move below the superficial layers of the Christmas story and to see your heart, and to see your love for us, that we all lost, continually falling short of your glory, but you sent your son into this world that he is that faithful high priest yet without sin, the perfect God-man for our salvation, and we praise you for him. But Lord, I pray that we as a church would not stop there, that our praise and our worship to you would not just stop on on a Sunday and with the words that we sing out, but it would be the actions of our lives that we would keep our eyes fixed on you, see where you are working and moving in the world and our community around us. And we would look to you with those same words as Mary. I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be according to me as your word. Lord, give us that kind of faith 
that kind of boldness, that kind of courage. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...